Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. It has been a hot minute, eh? Or, you know, nearly six months worth of minutes. So I don't want to spend much of our time today on a long and rambling story about all the reasons for the unexpected gap because I am seriously excited about today's passage and I want to get into this discussion But I do want to say just a few things that feel important. While there were a few other factors, the primary reason for my sudden hiatus was that I had another cancer relapse, and frankly, it kicked my butt on a few levels. Now, I've finished my treatment, and I'm back into remission, and I've been gaining back my energy over the last couple of months, so please know that I am well-supported and doing just fine. But I wanted to share this with you because, frankly, this is what life can look like sometimes, right? We can be all set to take a right and life veers left, and we have to make some choices about what's most important to us. Do not worry. The irony of my last published episode being a discussion about this very thing is definitely not lost on me. You know, pursuing endeavors of all types, whether it's something like this podcast or a writing project or a business or any number of other things is a real commitment to showing up for the work with consistency and dedication. Often that commitment can require that we stretch ourselves sometimes, that we do that showing up after we get home from day jobs or the kids are tucked into bed. It can require that we say no to social obligations that we'd like to say yes to, or that we skip sinking into the couch for just one episode. I believe deeply that that commitment and that consistency do matter a great deal. And also, I believe that we should use our discernment to approach that commitment and that consistency with perspective and sustainability. In other words, you know, sometimes we're going to have to let some of the plates that we are holding in the air hit the ground. Now, it's true that some of them will crack or break or shatter into a thousand tiny pieces never to be restored, and that that's not easy. But some of them, as it turns out, can actually bounce a little. You know, I am a one-woman show here. I have clients and a business to run that makes my living. I have a marriage that is deeply precious to me, an aging parent who requires quite a bit of care and attention, friendship and support networks that I treasure. So when faced with a health crisis, the plate that held the, <laughs> the plate that held this podcast was It wasn't the plate that I fought hardest to keep in the air, and that was absolutely the right choice. It bounced. Now, 
I have lost some listeners, I'm sure, but I will gain new ones over time. I love this work. I love making these for you. It's work that's meaningful to me, even though it's not my paid work. And I share all of this with you just as a gentle reminder that not all of the plates that you are holding up are equal in value to you. It is okay if for your health and sanity or for the plates that you hold most dear, you need to drop one now and then. Remember, you can pick it up later if that's what you choose. Taking a break does not have to be the end of things if that's not what you want or what is right for you. Seriously, sometimes shit happens and we have got to put something down. I put this podcast down for nearly six months. This episode was supposed to air on November 6th of last year. And, you know, I'm digging out of my backlog of work and I can't promise consistent weekly episodes again just yet, though I am super excited to recommit to that soon. I will very messily wrap up this season three here with a big old unplanned gap in the middle and potentially a gap or two before the season is over. And you know what? It will be fine. Okay, so with all of that said, I am beyond ready to dig into this week's excerpt. We are talking about David James Duncan's doorstopper of a book, The Brothers K. Now, I came across David James Duncan several years ago when I read his quirky madcap novel, The River Y, and absolutely loved it. I recently picked up his collection, River Teeth, and can't wait to see what his shorter work and his essays are like. I have this weird weakness for books with the word river in them. You think I'm joking, but I'm really not. It is literally a category all its own on my bookshelf. The Brothers K is a novel that is hard to capture. It follows the Chance family over decades, and it is powerful and funny and poignant in often surprising ways. I really can't recommend it highly enough. And also, I do feel compelled to say that for many, it takes a minute to catch on to David James Duncan's style. But man, stick with it because it will definitely be worth it. I promise you. Today's excerpt does a good job of avoiding spoilers. So I don't really think my usual warning about novels is necessary here. So without further ado, let's jump in from David James Duncan's The Brothers K. There are kinds of human problems which really do seem, as our tidy expressions would have it, to come to a head and demand to be dealt with. But there are also problems, often just as serious, which come to nothing that we can recognize or openly deal with. Some long-lived, insidious problems simply slip us off to one side of ourselves. Some gently rob us of just enough energy or faith so that days which once took place on a horizontal plane become an endless series of uphill slogs. And some, like high water working year after year at the roots of a riverside tree, quietly undercut our trust or our hope, our sense of place or of humor, our ability to empathize or to feel enthused, and we don't sense impending danger. We don't feel the damage at all till one day, to our amazement, we find ourselves crashing to the ground. Peter 
had one of these kinds of problems. Mm, Do you not just love this? Okay. So I love that he sorts our problems into two kinds here, ones that we can see and recognize and thus deal with, and those that are hidden somehow, ones that we can avoid looking at directly. I think of these as the sorts of underlying problems that cause other problems, often that first type that come to a head and, quote, demand to be dealt with. For example, an issue with vulnerability that leads to a coping mechanism like stonewalling in a relationship. The problem that is likely to be brought up in a fight or in couples counseling is the stonewalling, right? But there is this deeper issue at play, one that can be danced around or denied or avoided right up until it can't. These are those issues that are buried deep and often the ones that we believe we've resolved or found a way to manage, right? This resonates so powerfully with me. If you've been listening for a while, it likely does not come as a surprise that I immediately think of Brene Brown and all of her work on shame here. In an old 2013 Super Soul Sunday episode with Oprah that I will, of course, link in the show notes, Brene Brown talks about shame in a way that dovetails so perfectly with this excerpt. In it, she explains that while we can have specific memories that elicit feelings of shame, that, quote, there are also quiet and insidious messages that we marinate in over a lifetime. And she goes on, quote, here's the bottom line with shame. The less you talk about it, the more you got it. Shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. By keeping quiet, she says, our shame will grow exponentially. And then she goes on to say, quote, and this is a this is a doozy, it will creep into every corner and crevice of your life. Oh man, right? Okay, so I have more to share from this, but I do want to pause here to notice two things that she said. First, she uses the word insidious. And so does Dave David James Duncan in our excerpt. He says Some long-lived insidious problems simply slip us off to one side of ourselves. Now, I want to take a closer look at the word because language matters. Merriam-Webster gives the essential meaning of insidious as causing harm in a way that is gradual or not easily noticed. Well, that about sums it up perfectly, right? Causing harm in a way that is gradual were not easily noticed. Mm. And the way he says this, slip us off to one side of ourselves. Oh, man, I just love that. It's really what happens, right? When we're in a good place, a healthy place, our inner dichotomies and internal conflicts tend to sort of balance and offset themselves. You know, our traits and inclinations kind of veer toward the center version when we're healthy. For example, when someone inclined toward perfectionism is in a healthy place, it may take the form of diligence or care with detail. But when they slip to one side of themselves, it may take the form of workaholic behavior. Or if they slip to the other direction of themselves, go toward 
maybe stopping them from beginning anything at all since reality can never quite match the perfection that we fantasize about, right? You know, in myself, I have seen this take form time and again. I am not entirely joking when I tell my friends that I carry within me at one end of my internal spectrum this total rebel that resists completely being hemmed in or defined by some kind of particular identity. And then over on the other side of that internal spectrum, I have this very sort of Martha Stewart-esque type A perfectionist who craves approval and, (laughs) you know, is like calmed and appeased by the sight of my neatly stacked white dishware and tulips on the kitchen table. You know, at one unhealthy point in my early 20s, I slipped off to one side and I quit school and everything else in my life to run off and be a raft guide in the woods. And in another unhealthy point in my later 20s, I slipped all the way to the other side, packed up all of my outdoor gear entirely, and went off to law school. Yeah, one end or the other, right? No healthy in the middle, which, you know, might have looked a little closer to, say, like the summer of 2017 for me, where I worked part-time as a raft guide while still maintaining my business and living in our little retro-style camper that I had actually delighted in renovating. Sort of balanced in the middle, right? We know when we've slipped to one side of ourselves, when we're ignoring or neglecting or rejecting some part of ourselves for whatever reasons. Now, secondly, this description of quiet, insidious messages of shame that we marinate in over a lifetime and that eventually creep into every corner and crevice of our lives feels exactly like what David James Duncan is talking about in this passage, doesn't it? You know, problems that slip us off to one side of ourselves or gently rob us of just enough energy or faith so that days which once took place on a horizontal plane, become an endless series of uphill slogs. And I love how he describes how these issues mess with our lives. He really nails it, doesn't he? They don't keep us from living entirely, right? They aren't showstoppers like the first sort of problems he mentions, the ones that must clearly be dealt with before life can continue forward. But they steal something from our lives. They steal our equilibrium, our energy, our faith. They steal the richness that we are entitled to as human beings. And his imagery here, days which once took place on a horizontal plane become an endless series of uphill slogs. Uphill slogs. They just make life somehow harder, right? More taxing in the day-to-day. And that is just an evil little cycle, isn't it? You know, the practical result of being tired is that we don't do things. You know, for most of us, the things that we don't do when we're tired often fall into categories of self-care. We don't exercise or cook healthy meals or write in our journals or other things that, that really fill our wells or restore us to a good place. This is certainly true for me. I even struggle to go to bed when I'm tired. My inclination is to sink into the couch and watch episode after episode after episode after episode of whatever show it is that I'm currently loving. And I'll tell you, once my butt lands on that couch, prying it up again, even to go to bed can take an act of Congress. 
But it's exactly those self-care things, things like exercise and good food and solid rest, that are the key to regaining enough energy to begin coping with and resolving those insidious problems that were robbing us in the first place. Oh, catch 22, right? Damn it. Now, before I get into how we can leverage our curiosity to pry us up and out of this space, because you know I'm going there, I want to look at this second to last sentence. Oh, I love this. He says, And some, like high water working year after year at the roots of a riverside tree, quietly undercut our trust or our hope our sense of place or of humor, our ability to empathize or to feel enthused, and we don't sense impending danger. We don't feel the damage at all till one day, to our amazement, we find ourselves crashing to the ground. I mean, he says it all here, doesn't he? It's pretty straightforward. Issues like shame or fear of abandonment or even something seemingly more superficial like our relationship to money, which, come on, right, is never really about money. It's about security or approval or something else at least one layer deeper. But they chip away at our lives until we, quote, find ourselves crashing to the ground. This feels so, so huge to me quietly undercuts our trust, our trust in others, and perhaps most of all, our trust in ourselves, right? Quietly undercuts our hope, our belief that life can be rich and beautiful, that hard things will grow more bearable, that we can be whole and okay. It quietly undercuts our sense of place, our sense of belonging, that we have a right to belong, that we are deserving of belonging as we are. Our sense of humor, our ability to bring perspective and levity to our lives and situations, to hold things lightly and loosely, which is often how we stay agile in our lives, right? Our ability to empathize, Again, I mean, this is where we often find perspective and also a sense of community. Empathy helps us remember that we are never alone in this world, that we are not facing this life in a solitary vacuum, and our ability to feel enthused. Excitement and enthusiasm are at the heart of so much of what we love, of the joys and delights of our life, which of course feeds our energy and our creativity and our desire to dive into the living that matters to us. So I'm just going to read that line to you one more time because I just feel like it's such, such a doozy. And some, like high water working year after year at the roots of a riverside tree, quietly undercut our trust or our hope our sense of place or of humor, our ability to empathize or to feel enthused, and we don't sense impending danger. We don't feel the damage at all till one day, to our amazement, we find ourselves crashing to the ground. Okay, so I want to return to the second line of the excerpt because I think this is where we begin to figure all of this out. He says... There are also problems, often just as serious, which come to nothing that we can recognize or openly deal with. 
These are the problems, the issues that we're talking about here, the things quietly undercutting our lives, stealing our joy and humor and energy and enthusiasm and sense of humor and place. And how he puts it here is at the center of the problem. Nothing that we can recognize or openly deal with. It's that lack of recognition, the lack of seeing them that is as much the problem as the problem itself. In the first sort of problems he refers to, the ones which, you know, come to a head and demand to be dealt with, these, while certainly not necessarily easy by any stretch, are at least clear. And honestly, that's not nothing, right? You know, okay, I'm just going to use the language of violence here for a moment and hope you'll forgive me for it. If you need to skip this, skip this. But these first sort of problems are akin to someone in front of you pulling back to punch you in the face. You see it. You know it's not okay. And you know that looking away from it won't stop the blow from landing. So you have a choice depending on the circumstances. You can swerve or dodge or you can brace yourself for the hit and take the situation from there. It's likely that there was a buildup prior to the punch that you knew was happening in any number of moments where you might have taken some sort of action to resolve things differently. But now they've come to a head and they are demanding to be dealt with. But these second kinds of problems are like someone having stalked you for miles, slipping behind a hiding place every time you turned around at the sound of footsteps, getting closer and closer until they sweep your legs from behind. Basically, (laughs) they're like ninja problems, right? It requires developing some ninja skills of our own to catch them before our feet fly out from beneath us. And these skills begin with, drumroll, curiosity. We can cultivate our curiosity. We can cultivate our ability to dig around our lives without judgment and question what might be behind our flagging energy, our minimal enthusiasm, our lack of trust or humor. We can use this curiosity to bring some of these ninja problems out of their shadowy hiding places and pull their masks off. Sometimes that curiosity will mean that we find out where they've come from and it allows us to send them home with a hug. But sometimes it will mean that we realize that they've been with us all along, that this is their home and that they're not going anywhere. So we might as well make friends, provide them with whatever they need that will keep them quiet and out of trouble in their own well-lit space and wave as we walk past like every day to check on them, right? Either way, it's not until we see them that we can begin to deal with them. So what does this look like? You know, going back to Brene Brown's talk with Oprah, we'll just use her example of the insidiousness of shame. She says that the antidote to shame is empathy and explains that by talking about our shame with a friend who expresses empathy, the feeling, the painful feeling cannot survive. She says, quote, shame depends on me buying into the belief that I'm alone. Shame cannot survive being spoken. It cannot survive empathy. It depends on the belief that we're alone. Those ninja problems get scared when we bring in reinforcements, right? No one's able to surprise sweep your legs from behind if you've got someone at your back. Now, she uses the word friend here, and I want to expand how we think of this person to include therapists and anyone else who is qualified to help you pull those shadowy stinkers into the light. 
if your current community of people are part of the problem or maybe fear of losing their love or respect is part of what keeps you silent, seek someone slightly more detached to speak things out loud to. Often it's the 10,000 foot perspective of a near stranger with no agenda attached to you that can help us see the stealthy ways our ninja issues are stalking us. Get curious, who is in your life that can hear you? Who might be able to recognize where the river is working away at your roots? And in addition to speaking out loud to another human, in addition, not in place of, in addition, Maybe a place to begin right now in this moment is to be that friend to yourself as well. I am a huge fan of writing it out, of free writing or journaling or working through a series of why questions to dig around my own behaviors into the aspects of my life that are within my control and to recognize what I cannot control no matter how much I would like to. Staying with curiosity, being the genuinely interested and compassionate friend asking ourselves questions can keep us out of that spiral of shame and judgment. What stories are we telling ourselves? Are they actually true? Have you checked in with anyone to verify their veracity? Has this pattern shown up before? How? Where? What's the common ground? Is there one small way I can fill my well to create a tiny sliver of extra energy that might lead down a better path? What other questions can we be asking? How can we cultivate our curiosity so that we can more easily notice and recognize those insidious problems, the ninja issues? What can that look like in our lives? It doesn't have to be revolutionary every time. Maybe it is simply a pause, a breath of space where we ask ourselves, hmm, what's happening here? All of us, every single one of us will face both kinds of problems throughout our life. By cultivating our curiosity, speaking our fear or our shame or our sneaky Ninja River problems to others, listening with empathy as others speak theirs, We can shore up some of our own riverside trees before the river undercuts them and we can come crashing to the ground. The clues are here in this passage. What has turned into a series of uphill slogs? Are you struggling to find your trust or your hope or place or humor or empathy or enthusiasm? What has been insidiously undercutting the richness in your life and how can you add it back? Again, that is from David James Duncan's wonderful, wonderful book, The Brothers K, which, as always, um, of course, I will link in the show notes at cindyjivinoli.com backslash podcast. Now, this week's listener contribution comes from Sejoya P, and she says, Hi, Cindy. I recently finished the book, The Unsinkable Greta James, and absolutely loved it. There were several quotes from it that I wanted to share with you, but I chose this one, and I hope it's not too long quote, it's like that feeling of getting off a long flight and taking your first breath of fresh air. You were okay on the plane. You could breathe just fine and you could survive like that for a pretty long time if you had to. But once you're off, you realize you wouldn't want to live like that, wouldn't want to live that way forever. Not if you had a choice. 
I think being away did that for me. It helped me realize I hadn't breathed, really breathed, in a very long time. And Sejoya says, I have definitely felt this exact way, and I thought you might have a listener that might too. So thank you so much for sharing. Oh, I love this, Sejoya. Thank you. Oh, I have definitely felt this way too. I added this book to my audio queue and it came out and have have it on my short list to listen to as I drive across the country in June. So thank you, Sejoya, for the recommendation and for sharing this with me. I am always looking for more of these contributions, you guys. So please send them my way as you do your summer reading. I appreciate it. Alrighty, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I may not get these episodes to you every single week on the nose, but I do promise that it will definitely not be another six months before the next one. Next time, we will be diving into a beloved, beloved favorite author of mine, William Least Heat Moon. So know that I am so excited to get that in your hands. Until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.